This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Well, each fall, the Urban Land Institute and PwC release the Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, by all accounts the industry's most widely read summary of real estate investor sentiment. The 40th iteration of this hotly anticipated report was released just last week. And here with me once again this year to discuss the report's findings, I'm delighted to be joined by the report's co-publisher and PwC partner, Mitch Rochelle. Mitch, thanks for coming back to the program. Thanks, Sam. Look forward to it every year. Well, I was thrilled to receive uh, the report to hear some of your preamble and discussion at the Urban Land Institute. I want to go through some of the key themes that you've raised. The first of these, uh, you lead the report by describing something uh, called intensifying transformation. What is that? Well, you know, when you look at where we are in this cycle, it makes you scratch your head a little bit to figure out you know, basically, the, I think the question maybe you asked me three years ago, and everybody was asking me three years ago, what inning are we in? And what's kind of interesting is we looked at where we are in this cycle and what that all means for real estate. What's interesting about the cycle that we're in now at, you know, 112 months, the longest recovery we've had in U.S. history is 120 or 121 months. What's interesting about this cycle is this cycle has seen the lowest level of GDP growth and the lowest level of um, job growth of any of its sort of sibling previous cycles. And we're finding that what transformation really means is that real estate players are starting to better understand where we are in a cycle and making sure that we're not getting ahead of them ourselves. What's, what's also sort of interesting from the results of the survey, we ask the same question every year, which are what are the prospects for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year? And it sort of yields a pie chart. So I'm going to try to paint it uh, for the listeners because uh, they can't see it, especially if they're driving and listening to Sirius Satellite Radio. But there are, it's a one to five scale where one is abysmal and five is excellent. Um, the good to excellent slice, uh, good is uh, 62%, excellent is 17%. That is virtually identical to last year. In fact, when we launched a report uh, in Chicago, my colleague Andy Warren put up those two uh, pie charts side by side and left off the years because it didn't matter because they were virtually identical. So what we're finding is at this stage in the cycle, uh, respondents to the survey are as optimistic as they were a year ago, and also, more importantly, as disciplined as they were a year ago. And the decisions that are being made around real estate investment are really, really measured. So transformation really means, you know, what do we do this late in the cycle and do we change our behavior? And the reality is, and we'll talk more about technology and disruption uh, as we move forward through this conversation, but the fact of the matter is this late in the cycle, discipline uh, rules. One other thing uh, that I'll mention is we also ask the participants of the survey uh, for one word that they would use to describe um, the real estate market for the year ahead. And the last two years, the number one word that people used was competitive. Interestingly enough, that word is number two in terms of the number of people that responded with that word. But there's a new word, which is plateau. So what we're seeing is the real estate economy um, is plateauing in terms of opportunities, um, change. And again, that's a good thing. And I'll, I'll leave you with this um, on this topic. Most of our participants said in the interview form of this um, uh, report, as opposed to just the, the people who complete the online survey, if there is a recession that comes in our future, the real estate industry will not have caused it this time. So I'm really interested in your description of the use of the word plateau. Should I read anything into the into it being described as a plateau versus a peak? 
Yeah, I think that's that's the deliberate uh, choice of word there. So um, we're not certainly not inflating a bubble. You can look at asset prices, whether they be home prices, whether they be commercial real estate prices on a price per square foot basis and say, wow, some of these prices seem really, really high, but it's more a function of the lack of new supply that we're creating in the face of demand as opposed to the abundance of capital flowing around that's pumping up the bubble. So we're not seeing a peak because we're not creating a bubble. I guess that's uh, what people are telling us. All right. Well, the next major theme that you raise in the report is easing into the future. Tell us a little bit about that. This is the morbid one, Sam. <laughs> um, what's happening with our population is that um, the, the, the birth rate is projected to um, plateau a little bit. Uh, over time, but unfortunately, the the rate of death in our country will continue to to grow, which means, short of a change in immigration stance, and I'm not talking about uh, the current administration and their views on immigration. I'm just talking about the pattern that we've had, you know, across multiple administrations. Absent changing that, um, we're going to see potentially population decline in this country. And obviously, demographics and population greatly influence real estate in terms of its use, the nature of real estate, the location of real estate, um, and, and the demand therefore. So the easing into the future is a delicate way to say that we're getting older as a nation, and just naturally, we may have, over time, less demand uh, population-wise for real estate. If there's a silver lining in anything that I said, because I know that was a little depressing, and hopefully our listeners uh, are still listening, um, if you look at the natural decline in U.S. population and compare it to China, uh, the euro area, um, or Japan, we're still sort of at least positive relative to those countries uh, much who have much greater decline uh, in their population over time. Right. I can see the chart that you're referring to in the report. And for folks that are listening, you can get this from the Urban Land Institute's website. And it's just chock full of amazing material. Uh, the, the, the chart does show a rising death rate, as you described. Is that simply a function of the aging of the U.S. population? Yeah, no question. It's uh, it's the the reality is, thank goodness, we're living longer, um, but the birth rate, um, in by current standards of practice of our population, isn't growing at a great enough rate um, to 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 make up for that difference. And the thing to remember that in the near term. We have the millennials, which is an 80 million plus population cohort, followed by Gen Z, which could be an 80 million population cohort. So we will have two back-to-back -back generations of 80 plus million people. But if you project it all go, and which is normally not the case, what's happened sort of historically uh, was there was a generation dip in between. So. We do see um, two back-to-back -back large cohorts, but if you project it all out further, um, you're going to see, because of the aging population over time, a, a fall-off in our population. So what, what is the role or contribution of immigration in this? Well, obviously, if more people come in the country, they're going to make up the difference. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's factored into this um, easing into the future thought process is our workforce and what are the skills that are going to be required going forward to drive our economy. Um, and as the economy is driven, there goes there is the positive demand for, for real estate and whether or not we need to supplement um, the, the skill level that our schools, whether they be high schools or colleges or postgraduate studies, are producing relative to demand and making up the difference with, with folks that are coming into the country that have those skills. 
So these first two themes, intensifying transformation, easing into the future, fairly broad, high-level, macro, uh, digging into sort of you know, the urban cities, real estate piece of this with our, our third major theme, 18-hour cities, 3.0, suburbs, and stability. You know, several years ago, and I think, you know, we, you and I have been doing this uh, together on your air for, for many years, and obviously you and I have known each other for even longer, um, but the emerging trends in real estate survey sort of coined the phrase 18-hour cities uh, several years ago yep. because what we were seeing was tremendous demand not only from a real estate investor point of view in smaller cities as opposed to the larger gateway cities, but also a migration of young folks who that's where they wanted to settle uh, start their careers and even stay uh, and start their families. So let's pick up with the latter part of what I said, which is staying and starting their families. What we're seeing is as the millennials age and begin to start families and are high concentration of them in these 18-hour cities, they're looking at the services that the city itself has to offer. They're looking at what amenities they need um, in terms of how they want to raise their families, whether they be schools, whether they be open space, whether they be um, um, a place to park your car because now they feel like they need a car. And they're starting to gravitate towards the suburbs in some of these 18-hour cities, or they're looking for developments in the city that have more suburban-like amenities. And uh, one example would be a place to park your car. So um, that's the 3.0, because uh, somewhere between when we first identified the 18-hour cities as 1.0 and the 18-hour cities started to expand to 2.0, now they're even maturing further and creating suburban-like um, um, elements. The one thing I touched on briefly, which I'd like to come back to, which is education, and we've unpacked this in the past and past issues of emerging trends, but it keeps coming up and perhaps the drum beats even louder, which is the the millennials who are in any city environment and are considering starting a family or have started a family and trying to figure out where ultimately to live, the number one thing that influences their decisions around where to live is access to uh, quality education, whether it be public education in the first instance or private education in the second. And one of the things that we're seeing cities do to create these um, what I'll call suburban-like environments in the city is bringing in a charter school operator, for example, as an amenity into the community to attract um, families and attract more you know housing and so forth so there tends to be or i said said this way the schooling for their children tends to be the anchor that influences where they ultimately um, um you know dig their roots if you're just joining us you're listening to the real estate hour on business radio powered by the wharton school i'm your host sam chandon and my guest is mitch rochelle partner at PwC and co-publisher of Emerging Trends in Real Estate. The 40th iteration of that report has just been released, and we're discussing some of the key themes. So, Mitch, just to give us uh, you, know, uh, you know, some idea around this 18-hour city, can you give us some examples? This isn't New York. This isn't San Francisco. This isn't Washington, D.C. What is the 18-hour city? And I'm going to jump into it later when we talk about cities, but let's do it now. We're talking about Nashville. We're talking about um, Austin, Texas, Raleigh, Durham, Charlotte, North Carolina. What's interesting is, you know, I often find myself in panel discussions with some debate about what is an 18-hour city and whether it's not really a 16-hour city or like how do we arbitrarily come up with 18. Um, and generally, my test is if it's two or three o'clock in the morning and you need to buy something like your hair brand of hair product, you can get it in a 24-hour city. And if you can't get it in the city that you're in, it's probably a 16 or an 18-hour city. Um, but we went with 18 because it just felt a lot better than 16. Sure. So is the is the idea here that you know, in terms of the combination of amenities, quality of life, cost of living, uh, availability of skilled labor, uh, that you know, 18-hour cities are at an advantage relative to you know, a New York or a San Francisco? Um, is is 
is yes. there some um... – and, and the one thing you left out of that, Sam, is affordability. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe you said it and I was daydreaming. But the, the fact of the matter is affordability seems to be the fulcrum around the um, decision that both companies and employees are making about where to be. So we, there's, there's a virtuous cycle of sorts in an, in an Austin, in a Nashville, where they're affordable to do business, they're affordable to live. And when you have, in the case of Austin, UT, in the case of Nashville, um, Vanderbilt, in the case of Raleigh-Durham, a plethora of institutions that are producing talent that have the right skills, employers go down there, companies find it affordable, the workers find it affordable, and you just get in this virtuous cycle where people want to live. And that's why Austin, Nashville, Durham, Raleigh-Durham, Charlotte have population growths two or three times the national uh, population growth rate um, in those respective uh, smaller uh, cities. Now, what are some of the things that the cities themselves, from a public policy perspective, what are they doing right to that's allowing them to experience this growth? There tends to be better cooperation between the public sector and the private sector. I referenced earlier, like the recruitment of a charter school operator to create a school in a potential area that could be a community where homes could be built that would be uh, larger in footprint to accommodate the needs of a population of young folks who want to stay. Um, another example, which made it into our top 10 list this year at number 10, Tampa St. Pete, uh, what's really fascinating there, if you haven't, if you haven't been there, uh, you'll have to imagine it. If you have, you'll know what I'm talking about. They took the riverfront in Tampa, and several administrations earlier, mayoral administrations earlier, they had a long-term master plan to develop the waterfront, very similar to what San Antonio, Texas, did. Um, but the it really took multiple administrations working together from the public sector to the private sector and back to the public sector in an apolitical fashion to figure out how to create, how to bring capital to those projects to um, renovate and rejuvenate those areas. And it's be the downtown in Tampa is vibrant. Um, and I'm a runner. And when I go down there to speak, I'll stay at a hotel that you can walk right out the back door, right onto the waterfront and run just like in San Antonio for miles in each direction. And it's all developed and it's created, you know, a place that people want to live, a place that people want to work, a place that people want to play. And that, you know, work, live, play model um, or live, work, play, pick whichever one's most important to you, is really the thing that becomes the secret sauce. Uh, so in answer to your question, I'm sort of answering it with a, with a case study of uh, Tampa. And three or four years ago, Tampa was 30th in our ranking, and now it's made it up to uh, number 10 because their population is growing because people want to live there and it's affordable. But they also have this highly amenitized downtown. You mentioned work, live, play, uh, which takes me you into sort of the next. I put play first. But... <laughs> <laughs> that takes me into the next major theme of the report: uh, uh, amenities gone wild. And it's certainly living in New York City, it's incredible for me to sort of see the uh, amazing array of amenities uh, that uh, are made available in some of the newer apartment buildings here. Uh, certainly, things that would have seemed like um, anywhere from a luxury to an oddity uh, just a couple of years ago are, are, are now the norm. Uh, what are you referring? to uh, in, on, a, on a much larger scale in, in so, amenities gone wild? Yeah, so one of the things that we looked at are what are all of the things in, and I'll use a case study of an office building, that tenants are demanding either the employees of the tenant themselves are demanding or the tenant is demanding of the landlord. Um, and it's really interesting. So uh, in, in, in the top list, you have full-service cafeteria, showers, fitness facilities, and custom coffee as the four top things that, um, that employees are looking for in their space. I can't tell you how many buildings I've been to, ours including, included, that has a barista in regular office space, not in the lobby, not in the you know, shared cafeteria, but actually in tenant space uh, for the convenience of employees. Um, and what's happening is this has become a force of nature. 
not only do you need amenities in office, in, in multifamily, you need um, meeting space, you need potentially office space in an apartment property, you need high-speed Wi-Fi everywhere. You actually need, we heard this the other day uh, from a landlord we were talking to, where they are custom style but gourmet kitchens in the common area of an apartment building because what's happening is um, tenants love to entertain, but they don't necessarily want to use their apartment for entertaining. So they want access to have, you know, glamorous dinners with their friends um, in the common area of the building. So all of these are sort of the, the, the next wave of what is required to be, you know, cutting edge in terms of space use. The question becomes, what's it all cost? And um, that, you know, that's the big question. And who pays for it? Is this a cost that the landlord needs to supply to attract the tenants? Or is this a cost that the tenant needs to um, provide to attract workers um, and so on? So um, some would argue that it's gotten, quote, unquote, out of control. So that's why we've called that subsection amenities gone wild. So one of the things that the report has raised in the past uh, you know, has been this issue around affordability. I guess on the other side of this, what I'm wondering about is you know, where we've got income-constrained families that uh, you know, have been sort of you know, uh, you know, significantly impacted by the way in which rents have been growing faster than their incomes. You know, they've had to reallocate their household budget away from other really important things to pay their rent. Um, they're not as concerned about sort of uh, all, all of the uh, all these highly desirable amenities. Uh, they're just trying to make uh, their rent payments. Where do they fall into uh, sort of the, the patterns that we're seeing in terms of investment, development, activity, and multifamily? You know, you, we talked a little bit about the public-private partnership in, from a city perspective, and, and I think one of the things we're seeing is the tenant-landlord partnership, which is what are the things that – there's a common interest here. Without employees, the tenant's not going to be able to be there. And without tenants, the building's not going to be you know, able to pay its debt service. So how do tenants and employers and landlords sort of all work together to figure out Who's going to bear the cost of of all of this? In the past, you had sort of these arcane business practices where landlords just incurred costs and they passed them through to the tenants, and the tenants just got stuck with sticker shock when they got their operating expense escalation bill at the end of the year. What we're seeing now is this migration towards a way more collaborative um, environment, and I think the shared space model, whether it be the WeWorks or some of the other players in that space, I think the fact that they're becoming so prevalent in the landscape of who are tenants and buildings is that the notion of collaboration, not just in terms of what takes place in the space, but just the spirit of collaboration between tenant and landlord is something that is, in fact, a bit of a quote-unquote emerging trend. Right. So you mentioned WeWork and, and, and shared office space, uh, but, but when uh, I hear about uh, uh, sort of the, the the residential uh, the you know the, the apartment uh, parallel to this with a we live uh, and where you have you know, uh, you know shared uh, space for uh, for housing how does that work is is that a real phenomenon that we see impacting multifamily I don't think it's as much of a force of nature as it's um, com, you know comparative product in the office space I think you also see um, the Airbnb types that are also playing a role in terms of disruption um, in, in the multifamily space. Uh, you know, we're, we've sort of jumped into the next trend, which is pivoting into the new horizon, which is what role disruption plays in real estate. And oftentimes when you talk about disruption, we're thinking of the disruptors, like what's the thing that's going to be disrupting, you know, the real estate space? Is it construction technology? Is it autonomous vehicles? Is it the Internet of Things? But one of the things we've observed is how the built environment is being disrupted by disruptors. And what I mean by that is um, think about 
the volume of packages that get delivered to apartment buildings and um, gated communities and office buildings every single day. Literally, the number of packages that get delivered goes up in volume every single day. And what's interesting, and I don't know if you've had this experience, Sam, and certainly many of the listeners have, you order something online, it's been delivered, and you go and check and you get the email, it's been delivered, but yet you don't have the package because you don't know where it is. Because somebody signed for it somewhere in the office building, somebody signed for it somewhere in the apartment building, and there's this new phenomenon, which is who has custody of those packages in the period between when it was signed for and when ultimately the person picks it up? So office tenants, office landlords, apartment uh, landlords now have to deal with the chain of custody of somebody's online purchases. Um, so that's one element of disruption. Then let's talk about um, ride sharing and what changes need to get made to the design of the building, whether it be an apartment building or an office building, to accommodate the 25 you know, ride-hailing service cars that are lined up in front of the building. Um, so just like airports have had to redesign where you go pick up your ride-hailing car and there's signs all over the place, Uber, Lyft, or you know, go this way, um, apartment landlords in urban areas or in congested areas and uh, office landlords are starting to have to come to grips with that as well because if the building has a circular driveway, it can only accommodate so many of those cars. Um, the last thing I'll leave you with is the bikes that are just left all over the place, the scooters that are just left all over the place, or the person next to you in your apartment that is just staying there for the night because they got it through um, you know, an apartment sharing um, service and they expect a concierge in the lobby because they viewed that room night as if it was a hotel. So all of that is the disruption that's taking place in the built environment that the environment wasn't built for. Mitch, this is the 40th edition of this report. What have we learned about our industry in 40 years? Yeah, that's a great question, Sam. You know, one of the things we, we thought it was a great time to pause because we have been doing this for 40 years. And I guess a year ago when it was 39 years, the light bulb went off over our head. So we asked some questions of the survey respondents and we tackled this in the interviews that we did. And by the way, between interviews and surveys, it's the largest number of folks we've ever spoken to before, 2,400 uh, individuals. And one of the things that's become very interesting is going back to the roots and, and what some people may not know, uh, Emerging Trends in Real Estate was created by a life insurance company four decades ago as its primary research piece to talk, and they had open-ended uh, funds and they had um, separate accounts uh, for institutional-grade real estate. But they would talk to their investors every year and ask them questions about what would happen in a year ahead, and they would publish all of that and give it back to their investors just to sort of let the investors know what everybody else was thinking and have that guide some of their investment practices. But back then, um, 40 years ago, the size of the commercial real estate market, if you sort of added up all the pieces, was less than $250 billion. You fast forward four decades, and we're looking at a market um, that is over $6 trillion. And one of the big takeaways of what's changed in all of that time is how the real estate asset class has sort of been legitimized as a, as a, in terms of a, an, an, an allocation that investors, whether they be retail investors or institutional investors, global, domestic, what have you, want to allocate towards. Because if you looked at it four years ago, Commercial real estate was almost an obligation. The chief investment officer of whatever it was said, we have to have X in real estate. And then it was an obligation of the real estate team to go out and find that those assets so that they could allocate. Now it's a discretionary investment that um, you know, everywhere from a retail investor to an institutional investor decides how much they want to allocate because they also have choices. And I think if one thing happened 
over the 40 years that was a game changer, and we asked everybody what they thought the game changer was, it would be the existence of REITs and the the proliferation of REITs, you know, back maybe 20 years ago, because what it did was it totally democratized the ability of a retail investor to invest side by side with an institutional investor. Now you have you know, all different kinds of REITs between, you know, uh, publicly traded, the non-traded variety. Uh, you also have uh, private equity um, using feeder funds to let uh, retail investors, albeit accredited ones, invest side by side with institutional investors. There's no shortage. And then there's the movement that's afoot in terms of crowdfunding. Um, there's no shortage of opportunities for individuals to invest in institutional grade assets. So the fact that it's been democratized has really created so much more capital um, in the industry. And that to me and to us is the one game changer that's taken place over the last 40 years. A lot of the other things are just things of it's sort of history repeating itself, but the democratization of uh, commercial real estate is really uh, the big one. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned crowdfunding. I think you know, the syndication element of it isn't particularly new, uh, but leveraging the platform uh, to uh, make the investment opportunity available to such a wide range of people um, is certainly uh, new. Uh, wh what is your sense of where we are with crowdfunding right now? And what's its potential? Uh, yeah, if I were to go to the metaphor that I refuse to use as it relates to the where we are in a recession, I mean, where we are in a recovery and when's the next recession going to happen, I would say as it relates to crowdfunding, we're probably in the first inning. Um, just like uh, where we are with cryptocurrency and blockchain, we're really, really in the early innings. But if if I can see the future, I see a a, a total transformation. At, you know, when I when I I have uh, twin boys who are freshmen in college, um, and the way they think of of currency, you mean the endless supply that dad provides? No. The way they think of <laughs> currency is completely different. You know, the, the sharing of money back and forth and the ease at which those generations do it is completely different, right? And, uh, you know, paper currency almost doesn't even exist for these generations. And um, I think that the future of so many transactions will be on the blockchain will be through crowdfunding sources, and I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some linkage between crowdfunding and the blockchain. Um, and the currency that may be used may not be the U.S. dollar. It could be something like a, a Bitcoin or another crypto. So um, I think we're really, really in the early stages of it. And in what may it may be very similar to um, all of the disruption that's taking place in social media, that it will take governments a really long time to even understand it. So the fact that they don't understand it and they don't overregulate it from the beginning will allow the free market to try to figure out what they really want. Yeah. Well, you mentioned blockchain, and I know there's a lot of excitement in our industry and others around blockchain. Could you give us a concise response to the question of what is blockchain and what does it mean for real estate? Um, I think the simplest thing is the way title transfers in real estate. So if you think about the last home you bought or the last time you refinanced your home, there was this series of arcane things that you went through between the number of documents that needed to be signed, the, the role of title insurance, the role of title companies. Um, all of that could be made so much simpler if all of those documentation was sort of on the blockchain, on the chain, and all of the parties to the transaction were part of that you know, distributed ledger. And I'm working real hard to not use those terms like distributed ledger, which everybody uses and then their eyes <laughs> gloss over. But if you think about it, somewhere is a file cabinet that has all of the title records to every home in that community. But what if we took all those title records and we stuck them in this crypto land where if anybody wanted to transact, um, the willing buyer and the willing seller would have to do it across this um, this 
ledger. I'm having a hard time doing it without using the word ledger. Maybe it's because I'm an accountant, so I can't prevent that. But <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is that would just revolutionize the the way in which we we move forward with the transaction. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be faster because one of the things that slows down many purchase and sale agreements is the bank's process of underwriting credit risk. But certainly, we've all had a transaction somewhere in our life that was slowed down because of something related to title. So I think all of that goes away. Um, and I'm not going to go so far as to say what the future of title insurance is and the like, because I think all of those players will figure out where they belong. But transferring title to something is a perfect use case for uh, blockchain, because what it does, it allows all of the parties to the transaction to authenticate those elements of the transaction that require authentication. So is, is it fair to say that at this point, you know, heading into 2019, we're still at a fairly exploratory stage in terms of understanding what the applications of blockchain will be and where it will be most impactful in our industry. Yeah, no question. And also, the, and one of the requirements of blockchain is that all of the parties be on the chain. Um, maybe the best way to think about that is a group chat. Right, that we're all part of on you know our cell phone. We have no shortage of them. Everybody's got to be signed up for it, and the process of signing up all of these principles that exist in real estate transactions is going to take some time. But I believe once they all see the value proposition of it, and they all stop resisting change, they're going to realize that um, with efficiency comes increased profitability. And uh, But we're, boy, are we in the early stages of this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the report that we're discussing, which has just been released, the 40th uh, edition, uh, just this fall. Uh, Mitch, before we went to break, uh, we were talking about amenities gone wild and some of the uh, you know, ways in which uh, buildings are having to adapt because of the larger number of packages that are coming in, questions around the custody of those packages after they've been delivered, but before they find their way to the actual tenant. Well, uh, w one of the next themes that you raise uh, then that I want to parlay into is this: uh, what you describe as the myth of free delivery. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Uh, free delivery is the thing that gets all of us to buy stuff. Well, the delivery is free. Uh, so if I debunk uh, free delivery a little bit. Um, if you add up all of the input costs that go into delivering the typical package, it adds up to uh, just under three dollars, two dollars and ninety cents. If I um, look at um, the typical online purchase, it's eighty-two dollars. Um, so two ninety as, as uh, over eighty-two dollars is not an insignificant percentage. And if you think about how tight margins are in the retail business, whether it be e-commerce retail or brick-and-mortar retail, free delivery is greatly eating into that um, profit margin. Um, the one thing when I mention that, everybody shakes their head and says, how can $82 be the average purchase? Just don't forget that people are buying furniture online. They're buying big-ticket items like television online, as opposed to me that is, on a weekly basis, buying a five-pack of uh, iPhone charging cables online. But aside from that, um, there are some big-ticket items. But if it is a... Um, a $12 purchase and the typical delivery cost is, you know, just under $3, it really questions whether or not that's um, sustainable. And the reason why we mention that is we're retail's being transformed, no question about it, but we may gravitate towards a model sooner than you think where people are paying for delivery. And what's interesting is we at PwC did a study out of our retail practice, and we asked people what they would be willing to pay for. And what's interesting is 
um, if you had to pay for delivery, the the same day delivery was the greatest thing that people were willing to pay for, right? So 41% of the people said they would be willing to pay for same day delivery, whereas 23% of the people said that they would pay for next day, and only 23% said that they would be willing to pay for something that was in, in hours. So same day delivery as a category is something that is people are willing to pay for. So if you add these two things up, if it's not profitable for, to, for deliveries to take place for free, and if people are willing to pay for same day, what real estate infrastructure do we need to accommodate same day delivery? I would argue that in most areas where we all live, that infrastructure doesn't exist yet. Right, so we're going to talk a little bit about retail, but while we are on this question of what that infrastructure is, how is the increase in the number of packages, the desire to get them delivered very quickly, impacting demand for industrial, warehouse, distribution, fulfillment spaces? Well, it, and, and so the answer to that question is yes, even though that wasn't a yes or no question, because <laughs> everything you just mentioned are the things that are in the hottest demand. And we are underdeveloped by, you know, millions of square feet of retail uh, the distribution for the retail e-commerce uh, space. Uh, the question is where? So I mentioned some of the cities in the top 10. Brooklyn is number two. And when Brooklyn came out in the number two, Sam, I was scratching my head, and I kept going back to my colleague, Andy Warren, uh, who's our principal researcher, saying, it's got to be a mistake. Check it again. Check it again. Check it again. And what was interesting is when we drilled down into those responses, what we found is in a market like Brooklyn, because the population has grown so greatly, it's underserved for, amongst other things, um, what I'll call urban warehouse distribution. And while for multiple years, warehouse distribution has been the number one um, sub-asset class in our survey in terms of investors' desire. When you talk about where, they highlight Brooklyn as a market that is completely underserved because it just doesn't have that infrastructure. You, couldn't, you could barely accommodate same-day delivery. And I'm leaving out of the equation the, in, the, the growth area of same-day or shorter delivery in perishables, because that's becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger um, component of the uh, delivery market. So um, clearly, we need that. We, and I've spoken to, I've been, I don't think I've been on a panel in the last year that didn't have an industrial player on it. And they're constantly playing catch up. Um, so I think there's way more uh, room to run there in that subsector. You mentioned same-day delivery and perishables. Have we seen any real momentum develop over the last year in online grocery sales? Because I know, you know Amazon's gotten into this business. They've purchased Whole Foods. Is, is there anything that's come of that? Um, I think there's. I think the infrastructure still isn't there to make it all work. Um, and what's interesting is I spoke to um, a couple of the players in that industry. They were commenting on how they didn't have sufficient distribution um, for the volume of business, and they were telling me that they were using their trucks as distribution facilities. So they would load a truck in one location, keep it refrigerated, keep the engine running, and then another truck, a smaller truck, would show up at that truck and offload the stuff. That just seems like something that's not profitable. So um, what they need to figure out is um, using all the big data that exists, what are people buying, where do they live, what frequency are they buying it, and how to get that stuff closer to them so it's waiting so it can be delivered more, more rapidly. Thanks. And maybe the simple answer is, Sam, that the entire contents of the supermarket aren't available for delivery, but those items that are very, very popular um, are. And I think that's where big data is going to be the equalizer to make that business model make sense. So all of that is industrial and distribution issues. On the other side of this, there's the traditional retail channels, which obviously have come under tremendous pressure over the course of you know many years now. The next theme of the report is retail transforming to a new equilibrium. Is it finding its footing? Well, so I mentioned things we've learned in 40 years. I've also, in the past, always talked, talked about 
as I did earlier referencing 18-hour cities, things that you heard here first, things that we talked about in emerging trends years before anybody else was talking about them. Well, uh, I'm proud to say uh, in 2004, we really got it wrong. Uh, we asked um, folks um, the whether or not the different real estate sub-asset class were going to be disrupted, um, but that word didn't exist, by technology. And it says, how will increased use of technology by business and consumers affect demand for real estate? And believe it or not, in 2004, 70% of the respondents said that uh, retail would not be impacted by technology. So where does that leave us today? <laughs> um, what's interesting is, you know, as it relates to the new equilibrium, I, I think since 2004, and uh, maybe people got hit over the head when the global financial crisis happened, um, the real estate development community has figured it out. So the long-term average um, additions to supply um, of retail across the country, and this is shopping center um, space, is 112 million square feet. That's the long-term average. And since about 2009, we've been delivering new space considerably less. And in 2017, uh, 29 million square feet uh, was delivered. So I think the real estate market has figured it out. And the new equilibrium that we've referenced is creating new supply in response to demand as opposed to creating new supply because someone was willing to lend us money to build it and we thought people may need it in the future. So the good news is we're, we're not flooding the market with new supply. The bad news is there's still a lot in the built environment in retail that is excess space. But if there's a silver lining there, the Increased demand for healthcare-related space has created an alternative use for a lot of retail, and you've probably seen it in every community you, you go to across the country, which is the proliferation of urgent care um, in to traditional retail um, shopping center models. So um, the good news is um, there, those laser tag places that were interim uses for the big box retailer that you know had gone you know, bankruptcy, you know, filed for bankruptcy 10 years ago, um, some of those are turning into even mini hospitals. Um, and the healthcare industry has be begun its retail transformation, and that's created probably the biggest wave of land use um, in the retail space for traditional brick-and-mortar retail. And you've got a great chart of the report that shows, uh, by market, the largest decreases in retail square footage between 2007 and 2018. I guess what I'm wondering is when you have sort of new uses like uh, the healthcare spaces, um, as important as those are, I still have this sense that at the end of the day, we still are just going to have more retail than we need. And so some of the space is going to have to be rationalized. Yeah, some of it's going to be demolished uh, because you really it's very difficult to transform retail into um, maybe a kind of an office use, definitely not a housing use. Uh, um, the other thing is, what role does traditional retail, brick-and-mortar retail, play in the distribution chain for e-commerce? And I think that, obviously, most of it was built in places where people live. So does it become a loading zone and distribution hub for e-commerce? That's a possibility as well. So you, you kind of board up the windows of that big box retailer. You already have the truck bays in the back, and you make it a place that uh, boxes come and boxes go 24 hours a day. Well, one of the next uh, issues that you raise uh, is unlocking capacity. So where does that factor into this? Um, the, the fact of the matter is that um, if we're building less um, than we ever have before, how do we get the most out of what we've built? And uh, that's the, 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 the new sort of Rubik's Cube of how do we maximize the, the capacity and the utility of the space that we have, which is sort of building on uh, what I mentioned before about finding all of these alternative uses for um, the, the traditional retail space.
So uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. I, I wanted to turn finally then to uh, one of the final points in this first section of the report, issues to watch for 2019. Uh, you've got insurance, cybersecurity, risk management, infrastructure, immigration, and complacency. Just uh, tell us a little bit about complacency. Um, you know what? The, 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 the bottom line is that when the economy is humming along and real estate demand um, in the absence of supply is driving up prices, you just worry that participants in the market just get a little lazy and maybe get a little reckless. Um, and everything around us is moving with a tremendous pace of change. Um, and the real estate industry is still an analog business in all major respects in a highly digital world. So it's a, it's a constant reminder to the real estate players to n- keep up with the pace of change because, as we said earlier in the previous segment before the break, uh, disruptions all around us. Yeah, so we have just a minute left. Cybersecurity risk management. I guess when we think of cybersecurity, the things that come to mind for us immediately are going to be you know, large uh, platforms like Facebook experiencing sort of a breach or you know, uh, sort of a major retailer experiencing a breach where consumer credit card data is exposed. Uh, but this is an issue for real estate as well. Yeah, so think about your typical property manager, um, what they own in terms of data. So they have the social security numbers and and all the personal information that's on a apartment credit application for all of their tenants and even the tenants that aren't even there because they rejected them or the past tenants. Um, I don't know where that information is stored from a from a landlord to landlord or from a property manager to property manager, but they have that. Even more so, let's talk about office landlords and what they have in their file cabinets, whether they be virtual or otherwise. They have information about private companies that's not public information. So there's a tremendous amount of information that exists. And when you talk to many of these players about cybersecurity, they say, yeah, that's the big retailers who get hacked, or that's this one that get hacked. They don't think about themselves. They're surrounded by e-commerce threats. They have computers all over their space, and they're very prone to being hacked. There is so much in this report. There's never enough time. Thank you so much for coming back to the program. Sam, always a pleasure. Look forward to it for next year. That was Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of Emerging Trends in Real Estate, which you can find on the Urban Land Institute's website. That is all the time we have for today. Our show will be repeated throughout the week. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks for joining us. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.